Chapter Thirteen of Work: A Story of Experience. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Violet. Work: A Story of Experience by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter Thirteen, Waking Up. Everything did go beautifully for a time, so much so that Christie began to think she really had got religion. A delightful peace pervaded her soul, a new interest made the dullest task agreeable, and life grew so inexpressibly sweet. That she felt as if she could forgive all her enemies, love her friends more than ever, and do anything great, good, or glorious. She had known such moods before, but they had never lasted long, and were not so intense as this. Therefore, she was sure some blessed power had come to uphold and cheer her. She sang like a lark as she swept and dusted. Thought high and happy thoughts among the pots and kettles, and when she sat sewing, smiled unconsciously, as if some deep satisfaction made sunshine from within. Heart and soul seemed to wake up and rejoice as naturally and beautifully as flowers in the spring. A soft brightness shone in her eyes, a fuller tone sounded in her voice. And her face grew young and blooming with the happiness that transfigures all it touches. Christie's growing handsome, David would say to his mother, as if she was a flower in which he took pride. Thee is a good gardener, Davy, the old lady would reply, and when he was busy would watch him with a tender sort of anxiety, as if to discover a like change in him. But no alteration appeared, except more cheerfulness and less silence. For now there was no need to hide his real self, and all the social virtues in him came out delightfully after their long solitude. In her present uplifted state, Christie could no more help regarding David as a martyr and admiring him for it than she could help mixing sentiment with her sympathy. By the light of the late confessions, his life and character looked very different to her now. His apparent contentment was resignation; his cheerfulness, a manly contempt for complaint; his reserve, the modest reticence of one who, having done a hard duty well, desires no praise for it. Like all enthusiastic persons. Christie had a hearty admiration for self-sacrifice and self-control, and while she learned to see David's virtues, she also exaggerated them, and could not do enough to show the daily increasing esteem and respect she felt for him, and to atone for the injustice she once did him. She grubbed in the garden and greenhouse, and learned hard botanical names. That she might be able to talk intelligently upon subjects that interested her comrade. Then, as autumn ended out-of-door work, 
she tried to make home more comfortable and attractive than ever. David's room was her especial care. For now, to her, there was something pathetic in the place and its poor furnishing. He had fought many a silent battle there, won many a secret victory, and tried to cheer his solitude with the best thoughts the minds of the bravest, wisest men could give him. She did not smile at the dilapidated idols now, but touched them tenderly, and let no dust obscure their well-beloved faces. She set the books in order daily, taking many a sip of refreshment from them by the way, and respectfully regarded those in unknown tongues, full of admiration for David's learning. She covered the eruptive sofa neatly, saw that the little vase was always clear and freshly filled, cared for the nursery and the gable window, and preserved an exquisite neatness everywhere, which delighted the soul of the room's order-loving occupant. She also, alas, for romance, cooked the dishes David loved, and liked to see him enjoy them with the appetite which once had shocked her so. She watched over his buttons with a vigilance that would have softened the heart of the crustiest bachelor. She even gave herself the complexion of a lemon by wearing blue, because David liked the pretty contrast with his mother's drabs. After recording that last fact, it is unnecessary to explain what was the matter with Christie. She honestly thought she had got religion, but it was piety's twin sister who produced this wonderful revival in her soul. And though she began in all good faith, she presently discovered that she was, in quotes, not the first maiden who came but for friendship and took away love. After the birthnight confessions, David found it easier to go on with the humdrum life he had chosen from a sense of duty. For now, he felt as if he had not only a fellow worker, but a comrade and friend who understood, sympathized with, and encouraged him by an interest and goodwill inexpressibly comfortable and inspiring. Nothing disturbed the charm of the new league in those early days for Christie was thoroughly simple and sincere, and did her womanly work with no thought of reward or love or admiration. David saw this, and felt it more attractive than any gift of beauty or fascination of manner would have been. He had no desire to be a lover, having forbidden himself that hope. But he found it so easy and pleasant to be a friend, that he reproached himself for not trying it before, and explained his neglect by the fact that Christie was not an ordinary woman, since none of all the many he had known and helped had ever been anything to him but objects of pity and protection. Mrs. Sterling saw these changes with her wise, motherly eyes, but said nothing, for she influenced others by the silent power of character. Speaking little, and unusually gifted with the meditative habits of age, she seemed to live in a more peaceful world than this. As George MacDonald somewhere says, her soul seemed to sit apart in a sunny little room, safe from dust and noise, 
serenely regarding passers-by through the clear muslin curtains of her window. Yet she was neither cold nor careless, stern nor selfish, but ready to share all the joys and sorrows of those about her. And when advice was asked, she gave it gladly. Christie had won her heart long ago, and now was as devoted as a daughter to her, lightening her cares so skillfully that many of them slipped naturally onto the young shoulders, and left the old lady much time for rest, or the lighter tasks fitted for feeble hands. Christie often called her mother, and felt herself rewarded for the hardest, humblest job she ever did, when the sweet old voice said gratefully, I thank thee, daughter. Things were in this prosperous, not to say paradisiacal, state, when one member of the family began to make discoveries of an alarming nature. The first was that the Sunday pilgrimages to church were seasons of great refreshment to soul and body when David went also, and utter failures if he did not. Next, that the restless ambitions of all sorts were quite gone, for now Christie's mission seemed to be sitting in a quiet corner and making shirts in the most exquisite manner, while thinking about, well, say, botany, or any kindred subject. Thirdly, that home was woman's sphere after all, and the perfect roasting of beef, brewing of tea, and concocting of delectable puddings, an end worth living for if masculine commendation rewarded the labour. Fourthly, and worst of all, she discovered that she was not satisfied with half-confidences, and quite pined to know all about David's trouble. The little needle-book with the faded letty on it haunted her. And when, after a pleasant evening below, she heard him pace his room for hours, or play melancholy airs upon the flute, she was jealous of that unknown woman who had such power to disturb his peace, and felt a strong desire to smash the musical confidant into whose responsive breast he poured his woe. At this point Christie paused, and, after evading any explanation of these phenomena in the most skilful manner for a time, suddenly faced the fact, saying to herself with great candor and decision, I know what all this means. I'm beginning to like David more than is good for me. I see this clearly and won't dodge any longer, but put a stop to it at once. Of course I can, if I choose, and now is the time to do it, for I understand myself perfectly, and if I reach a certain point it is all over with me. That point I will not reach. David's heart is in that Letty's grave, and he only cares for me as a friend. I promise to be one to him, and I'll keep my word like an honest woman. It may not be easy, but all the sacrifices shall not be his, and I won't be a fool. With praiseworthy resolution, Christie set about the Reformation without delay. Not an easy task and one that taxed all her wit and wisdom to execute without betraying the motive for it. She decided that Mrs. Sterling must not be left alone on Sunday, 
so the young people took turns to go to church. And such dismal trips Christie had never known. For all her Sundays were bad weather, and Mr. Power seemed to hit on unusually uninteresting texts. She talked while she sewed, instead of indulging in dangerous thoughts, and Mrs. Sterling was surprised and entertained by this new loquacity. In the evening she read and studied with a diligence that amazed and rather disgusted David, since she kept all her lively chat for his mother, and pored over her books when he wanted her for other things. "'I'm trying to brighten up my wits,' she said, and went on, trying to stifle her affections. But though the absurdity, as she called the new revelation, was stopped externally, it continued with redoubled vigour internally. Each night, she said, this must be conquered. Yet each morning it rose fair and strong to make the light and beauty of her day and conquer her again. She did her best and bravest, but was forced at last to own that she could not put a stop to it, because she had already reached the point where it was all over with her. Just at this critical moment an event occurred which completed Christie's defeat, and made her feel that her only safety lay in flight. One evening she sat studying ferns, and heroically saying over and over, Andiantum, Aspidium, and Asplenium, Trichomanes, while longing to go and talk delightfully to David, who sat musing by the fire. I can't go on so much longer, she thought despairingly. Polypodium aureum, a native of Florida, is all very interesting in its place, but it doesn't help me to gain self-control a bit, and I shall disgrace myself if something doesn't happen very soon. Something did happen, almost instantly, for as she shut the cover sharply on the poor polypods, a knock was heard, and before David could answer it the door flew open and a girl ran in. Straight to him she went, and clinging to his arm, said excitedly, Oh, do take care of me! I've run away again! Why, Kitty, what's the matter now? asked David, putting back her hood and looking down at her with the paternal expression Christie had not seen for a long time and missed very much. Father found me and took me home, and wanted me to marry a dreadful man, and I wouldn't, so I ran away to you. He didn't know I came here before, and I'm safe if you'll let me stay, cried Kitty, still clinging and imploring. Of course I will. I'm glad to see you back again, answered David, adding pitifully as he put her in his easy chair took her cloak and hood off, and stood stroking her curly hair. Poor little girl! It is hard to have to run away so much, isn't it? Not if I come here! So pleasant I'd like to stay all my life! And Kitty took a long breath, as if her troubles were over now. Who's that? she asked suddenly, as her eye fell on Christie, who sat watching her with interest. That is our good friend Miss Devon. She came to take your place and we got so fond of her we could not let her go, answered David with a gesture of introduction. 
quite unconscious that his position just then was about as safe and pleasant as that of a man between a lighted candle and an open powder barrel. The two young women nodded to each other, took a swift survey, and made up their minds before David had poked the fire. Christie saw a pretty face, with rosy cheeks, blue eyes, and brown rings of hair lying on the smooth, low forehead. A young face, but not childlike, for it was conscious of its own prettiness, and betrayed the fact by little airs and graces that reminded one of a coquettish kitten. Short and slender, she looked more youthful than she was, while a gay dress with gilt earrings, locket at the throat, and a cherry ribbon in her hair made her a bright little figure in that plain room. Christie suddenly felt as if ten years had been added to her age, as she eyed the newcomer, who leaned back in the great chair talking to David, who stood on the rug, evidently finding it pleasanter to look at the vivacious face before him than at the fire. Just the pretty, lively sort of girl sensible men often marry, and then discover how silly they are, thought Christie, taking up her work and assuming an indifferent air. She's a lady and nice-looking, but I know I shan't like her, was Kitty's decision, as she turned away and devoted herself to David, hoping he would perceive how much she had improved and admire her accordingly. So you don't want to marry this Miles because he is not handsome. You'd better think again before you make up your mind. He is respectable, well-off, and fond of you, it seems. Why not try it, Kitty? You need someone to take care of you sadly, David said when her story had been told. If father plagues me much, I may take the man. But I'd rather have the other one if he wasn't poor, answered Kitty with a sidelong glance of the blue eyes and a conscious smile on the red lips. Oh, there's another lover, is there? Lots of them. David laughed and looked at Christy as if inviting her to be amused with the freaks and prattle of a child. But Christie sewed away without a sign of interest. That won't do, Kitty. You are too young for much of such nonsense. I shall keep you here a while, and see if we can't settle matters both wisely and pleasantly, he said, shaking his head as sagely as a grandfather. I'm sure I wish you would. I love to stay here. You were always so good to me. I'm in no hurry to be married, and you won't make me, will you? Kitty rose as she spoke, and stood before him with a beseeching little gesture, and a confiding air quite captivating to behold. Christie was suddenly seized with a strong desire to shake the girl and call her an artful little hussy, but crushed this unaccountable impulse and hemmed a pocket-handkerchief with reckless rapidity, while she stole covert glances at the tableau by the fire. David put his finger under Kitty's round chin, and lifting her face, looked into it, trying to discover if she really cared for this suitor, who seemed so providentially provided for her. Kitty smiled and blushed, and dimpled under that grave look so prettily that it soon changed, and David let her go, saying indulgently, you shall not be troubled, for you are only a child after all. Let the lovers go and stay and play with me, for I have been rather lonely lately. That's a reproach for me, thought Christie, 
longing to cry out, "No, no, send the girl away and let me be all in all to you." But she only turned up the lamp and pretended to be looking for a spool, while her heart ached and her eyes were too dim for seeing. "I'm too old to play, but I'll stay and tease you as I used to, if Miles don't come and carry me off as he said he would," answered Kitty. With a toss of the head, which showed she was not so childlike as David fancied, but the next minute she was sitting on a stool at his feet, petting the cat, while she told her adventures with girlish volubility. Christie could not bear to sit and look on any longer, so she left the room, saying she would see if Mrs. Sterling wanted anything, for the old lady kept her room with a touch of rheumatism. As she shut the door, Christie heard Kitty say softly. Now we'll be comfortable as we used to be, won't we? What David answered, Christie did not stay to hear, but went into the kitchen, and had her first pang of jealousy out alone, while she beat up the buckwheats for breakfast with an energy that made them miracles of lightness on the morrow. When she told Mrs. Sterling of the new arrival, the placid little lady gave a cluck of regret, and said with unusual emphasis, "I'm sorry for it. Why?" Asked Christie, feeling as if she could embrace the speaker for the words. She is a giddy little thing, and much care to whoever befriends her. Mrs. Sterling would say no more, but as Christie bade her good night, she held her hand, saying with a kiss, "No one will take thy place with me, my daughter." For a week, Christie suffered constant pinpricks of jealousy, despising herself all the time. And trying to be friendly with the disturber of her peace, as if prompted by an evil spirit, Kitty unconsciously tried and tormented her from morning to night, and no one saw or guessed it, unless Mrs. Sterling's motherly heart divined the truth. David seemed to enjoy the girl's lively chat, her openly expressed affection, and the fresh young face that always brightened when he came. Presently, however, Christie saw a change in him, and suspected that he had discovered that Kitty was a child no longer, but a young girl with her head full of love and lovers. The blue eyes grew shy, the pretty face grew eloquent with blushes now and then as he looked at it, and the lively tongue faltered sometimes in speaking to him. A thousand little coquetries were played off for his benefit. And frequent appeals for advice in her heart affairs kept tender subjects uppermost in their conversations. At first, all of this seemed to amuse David as much as if Kitty were a small child playing at sweethearts. But soon his manner changed, growing respectful and a little cool when Kitty was most confiding. He no longer laughed about Miles, stopped calling her little girl, and dropped his paternal ways as he had done with Christie. By many indescribable but significant signs, he showed that he considered Kitty a woman now, and treated her as such, being all the more scrupulous in the respect he paid her, because she was so unprotected, and so wanting in the natural dignity and refinement which are a woman's best protection. Christie admired him for this, but saw in it the beginning of a tenderer feeling than pity, and felt each day that she was one too many now. Kitty was puzzled and piqued by these changes, and being a born flirt, tried all her powers on David, veiled under guileless girlishness. 
She was very pretty, very charming, and at times most lovable and sweet when all that was best in her shallow little heart was touched. But it was evident to all that her early acquaintance with the hard and sordid side of life had brushed the bloom from her nature and filled her mind with thoughts and feelings unfitted to her years. Mrs. Sterling was very kind to her, but never treated her as she did Christie. And though not a word was spoken between them, the elder women knew that they quite agreed in their opinion of Kitty. She evidently was rather afraid of the old lady, who said so little and saw so much. Christie also she shunned without appearing to do so, and when alone with her put on airs that half amused, half irritated the other. David is my friend, and I don't care for anyone else, her manner said. As plainly as words, and to him she devoted herself so entirely, and apparently so successfully, that Christie made up her mind he had at last begun to forget his Letty, and think of filling the void her loss had left. A few words which she accidentally overheard confirmed this idea, and showed her what she must do. As she came quietly in one evening from a stroll in the lane, and stood taking off cloak and hood. She caught a glimpse through the half-open parlour door of David pacing to and fro, with a curiously excited expression on his face, and heard Mrs. Sterling say with unusual warmth, "Thee is too hard upon thyself, Davy. Forget the past and be happy as other men are. Thee is atoned for thy fault long ago. So let me see thee at peace before I die, my son. Not yet, mother. Not yet." I have no right to hope or ask for any woman's love till I am worthier of it," answered David, in a tone that thrilled Christie's heart. It was so full of love and longing. Here, Kitty came running in from the greenhouse with her hands full of flowers, and passing Christie, who was fumbling among the cloaks in the passage, she went to show David some new blossom. He had no time to alter the expression of his face for its usual grave serenity. Kitty saw the change at once, and spoke of it with her accustomed want of tact. "How handsome you look! What are you thinking about?" she said, gazing up at him with her own eyes bright with wonder, and her cheeks glowing with the delicate carmine of the frosty air. "I'm thinking that you look more like a rose than ever," answered David. Turning her attention from himself by a compliment, and beginning to admire the flowers, still with that flushed and kindled look on his own face, Christie crept upstairs, and sitting in the dark, decided with the firmness of despair to go away, lest she should betray the secret that possessed her—a dead hope now, but still too dear to be concealed. Mr. Power told me to come to him when I got tired of this. I'll say I am tired and try something else, no matter what. I can bear anything but to stand quietly by and see David marry that empty-hearted girl, who dares to show that she desires to win him. Out of sight of all this, I can conquer my love, at least hide it. But if I stay, I know I shall betray myself in some bitter minute, and I'd rather die than do that. Armed with this resolution, 
Christie went the next day to Mr. Power, and simply said, I'm not needed at the Stirlings any more. Can you give me other work to do? Mr. Power's keen eye searched her face for a moment, as if to discover the real motive for her wish. But Christie had nerved herself to bear that look and showed no sign of her real trouble, unless the set expression of her lips and the unnatural steadiness of her eyes betrayed it to that experienced reader of human hearts. Whatever he suspected or saw, Mr. Power kept to himself, and answered in his cordial way. Well, I've been expecting you would tire of that quiet life, and have plenty of work ready for you. One of my good Dorcases is tired out, and must rest. So you shall take her place, and visit my poor, report their needs, and supply them as fast as we can. Does that suit you? Entirely, sir. Where shall I live? asked Christie, with an expression of relief that said much. Here, for the present, I want a secretary to put my papers in order, write some of my letters, and do a thousand things to help a busy man. My old housekeeper likes you, and will let you take a duster now and then if you don't find enough other work to do. When can you come? Christie answered with a long breath of satisfaction. Tomorrow, if you like. I do. Can you be spared so soon? Oh, yes. They don't want me now at all, or I would not leave them. Kitty can take my place. She needs protection more than I, and there is not room for two. She checked herself there, conscious that a turn of bitterness had crept into her voice. Then, quite steadily, she added, Will you be kind enough to write, and ask Mrs. Sterling if she can spare me? I shall find it hard to tell her myself, for I fear she may think me ungrateful after all her kindness. No, she is used to parting with those whom she has helped, and is always glad to set them on their way toward better things. I will write tomorrow, and you can come whenever you will, sure of a welcome, my child. Something in the tone of those last words, and the pressure of the strong, kind hand, touched Christie's sore heart and made it impossible for her to hide the truth entirely. She only said, Thank you, sir. I shall be very glad to come. But her eyes were full, and she held his hand an instant, as if she clung to it, sure of succor and support. Then she went home, so pale and quiet, so helpful, patient, and affectionate, that Mrs. Sterling watched her anxiously. David looked amazed, and even self-absorbed Kitty saw the change and was touched by it. On the morrow Mr. Power's note came, and Christie fled upstairs while it was read and discussed. If I get through this parting without disgracing myself, I don't care what happens to me afterward, she said. And in order that she might do so, she assumed a cheerful air, and determined to depart with all the honors of war if she died in the attempt. So, when Mrs. Sterling called her down, she went humming into the parlour, smiled as she read the note silently given her, and then said with an effort greater than any she had ever made in her most arduous part on the stage, Yes, I did say to Mr. Power that I thought I'd better be moving on. 
I'm a restless creature, as you know, and now that you don't need me, I have a fancy to see more of the world. If you want me back again in the spring, I'll come. I shall want thee, my dear, but will not say a word to keep thee now, for thee does need a change. And Mr. Power can give thee work better suited to thy taste than any here. We shall see thee sometimes, and spring will make thee long for the flowers, I hope, was Mrs. Sterling's answer, as Christie gave back the note at the end of her difficult speech. Don't think me ungrateful. I've been very happy here, and never shall forget how motherly kind you've been to me. You will believe this and love me still, though I go away and leave you for a little while? prayed Christie, with a face full of treacherous emotion. Mrs. Sterling laid her head on Christie's head as she knelt down impulsively before her, and with a soft solemnity that made the words both an assurance and a blessing, she said, I believe and love and honor thee, my child. My heart warmed to thee from the first. It has taken thee to itself now. And nothing can ever come between us unless thee wills it. Remember that, and go in peace with an old friend's thanks, and good wishes in return for faithful service which no money can repay. Christie laid her cheek against that wrinkled one, and for a moment was held close to that peaceful old heart, which felt so tenderly for her, yet never wounded her by a word of pity. Infinitely comforting was that little instant of time, when the venerable woman consoled the young one with a touch, and strengthened her by the mute eloquence of sympathy. This made the hardest task of all easier to perform. And when David met her in the evening, Christie was ready to play out her part, feeling that Mrs. Sterling would help her, if need be. But David took it very quietly. Or at least he showed no very poignant regret at her departure, though he lamented it and hoped it would not be a very long absence. This wounded Christie terribly for all of a sudden a barrier seemed to rise between them, and the old friendliness grew chilled. He thinks I am ungrateful and is offended, she said to herself. Well, I can bear coldness better than kindness now, and it will make it easier to go. Kitty was pleased at the prospect of reigning alone, and did not disguise her satisfaction. So Christie's last day was anything but pleasant. Mr. Power would send for her on the morrow, and she busied herself in packing her own possessions, setting everything in order, and making various little arrangements for Mrs. Sterling's comfort, as Kitty was a heedless creature, willing enough, but very forgetful. In the evening some neighbors came in, so that dangerous time was safely passed, and Christie escaped to her own room with her usual good night all round. We won't have any sentimental demonstrations, no wailing or tender adieus. If I'm weak enough to break my heart, no one need know it. Least of all that little fool, thought Christie grimly, as she burnt up several long-cherished relics of her love. She was up early, 
and went about her usual work with the sad pleasure with which one performs a task for the last time. Lazy little Kitty never appeared till the bell rang, and Christie was fond of that early hour, busy though it was, for David was always before her with blazing fires, and while she got breakfast he came and went with wood and water, milk and marketing, often stopping to talk, and always in his happiest mood. The first snowfall had made the world wonderfully lovely that morning, and Christie stood at the window, admiring the bridal look of the earth as it lay dazzlingly white in the early sunshine. The little parlour was fresh and clean, with no speck of dust anywhere. The fire burned on the bright andirons. The flowers were rejoicing in their morning bath, and the table was set out with dainty care. So homelike, so pleasant, so very dear to her, that Christie yearned to stay, yet dared not, and had barely time to steady face and voice when David came in with the little posies he always had ready for his mother and Christie at breakfast time. Only a flower by their plates, but it meant much to them. For in these lives of ours, tender little acts do more to bind hearts together than great deeds or heroic words, since the first are like the dear daily bread that none can live without. The latter but occasional feasts, beautiful and memorable, but not possible to all. This morning David laid a sprig of sweet-scented balm at his mother's place, two or three rosy daisies at Kitty's, and a bunch of Christie's favorite violets at hers. She smiled as her eye went from the scentless daisies, so pertly pretty, to her own posy, full of perfume and the half-sad, half-sweet associations that haunt these blue-eyed flowers. I wanted pansies for you, but not one would bloom. So I did the next best, since you don't like roses, said David, as Christie stood looking at the violets with a thoughtful face. For something in the peculiarly graceful arrangement of the heart-shaped leaves recalled another nosegay to her mind. I like these very much, because they came to me in the beginning of this, the happiest year of my life. And scarcely knowing why, except that it was very sweet to talk to David in the early sunshine, she told about the flowers someone had given her at church. As she finished, she looked up at him, and though his face was perfectly grave, his eyes laughed. And with a sudden conviction of the truth, Christie exclaimed, "David, I do believe it was you. I couldn't help it. You seemed so touched and troubled. I longed to speak to you, but didn't dare. So dropped the flowers and got away as fast as possible. Did you think it very rude? I thought it the sweetest thing that ever happened to me." That was my first step along a road that you have strewn with flowers ever since. I can't thank you, but I never shall forget it. Christie spoke out fervently, and for an instant her heart shone in her face. Then she checked herself, 
fearing she had said too much, fell to slicing bread with an energetic rapidity which resulted in a cut finger. Dropping the knife, she tried to get her handkerchief, but the blood flowed fast, and the pain of a deep gash made her a little faint. David sprung to help her, tied up the wound, put her in the big chair, held water to her lips, and bathed her temples with a wet napkin. Silently, but so tenderly that it was almost too much for poor Christy. For one happy moment her head lay on his arm, and his hand brushed back her hair with a touch that was a caress. She heard his heart beat fast with anxiety, felt his breath on her cheek, and wished that she might die then and there. Though a bread-knife was not a romantic weapon, nor a cut finger as interesting as a broken heart. Kitty's voice made her start up, and the blissful vision of life, with David in the little house alone, vanished like a bright bubble, leaving the hard reality to be lived out, with nothing but a woman's pride to conceal a woman's most passionate pain. It's nothing. I'm all right now. Don't say anything to worry your mother. I'll put on a bit of court plaster, and no one will be the wiser, she said, hastily removing all traces of the accident but her own pale face. Poor Christy! It's hard that you should go away with a wound like this on the hand that has done so much for us, said David, as he carefully adjusted the black strip on that forefinger, roughened by many stitches set for him. I loved to do it was all Christy trusted herself to say. I know you did. And in your own words I can only answer, I don't know how to thank you. But I never shall forget it. And David kissed the wounded hand as gratefully and reverently as if its palm was not hardened by the humblest tasks. If he had only known, ah, if he had only known, how easily he might repay that debt and heal the deeper wound in Christie's heart. As it was, she could only say, You are too kind, and began to shovel tea into the pot as Kitty came in, as rosy and fresh as the daisies she put in her hair. Ain't they becoming? she asked, turning to David for admiration. No, thank you, he answered absently looking out over her head as he stood upon the rug in the attitude which the best men will assume in the bosoms of their families. Kitty looked offended and turned to the mirror for comfort, while Christie went on shoveling tea, quite unconscious what she was about, till David said gravely, "'Won't that be rather strong?' "'How stupid of me! I always forget that Kitty does not drink tea.' and Christy rectified her mistake with all speed. Kitty laughed and said in her pert little way, "'Getting up early don't seem to agree with either of you this morning. I wonder what you've been doing?' "'Your work. Suppose you bring in the kettle. Christy has hurt her hand.' David spoke quietly, but Kitty looked as much surprised as if he had boxed her ears, for he had never used that tone to her before. She meekly obeyed, 
and David added with a smile to Christie, Mother is coming down, and you'll have to get more color into your cheeks if you mean to hide your accident from her. That is easily done, and Christie rubbed her pale cheeks till they rivaled Kitty's in their bloom. How well you women know how to conceal your wounds, said David, half to himself. It is an invaluable accomplishment for us sometimes. You forget that I have been an actress, answered Christie, with a bitter sort of smile. I wish I could forget what I have been, muttered David, turning his back to her and kicking a log that had rolled out of place. In came Mrs. Sterling, and everyone brightened up to meet her. Kitty was silent, and wore an injured air which nobody minded. Christie was very lively, and David did his best to help her through that last meal, which was a hard one to three out of the four. At noon a carriage came for Christie, and she said good-bye, as she had drilled herself to say it, cheerfully and steadily. It is only for a time, else I couldn't let thee go, my dear, said Mrs. Sterling, with a close embrace. I shall see you at church, and Tuesday evenings, even if you don't find time to come to us, so I shall not say good-bye at all. And David shook hands warmly, as he put her into the carriage. I'll invite you to my wedding when I make up my mind, said Kitty, with feminine malice. For in her eyes Christy was an old maid, who doubtless envied her her lots of lovers. I hope you will be very happy. In the meantime, try to save dear Mrs. Sterling all you can, and let her make you worthy a good husband, was Christie's answer to a speech she was too noble to resent by a sharp word, or even a contemptuous look. Then she drove away, smiling and waving her hand to the old lady at her window. But the last thing she saw as she left the well-beloved lane was David going slowly up the path, with Kitty close beside him, talking busily. If she had heard the short dialogue between them, the sight would have been less bitter. For Kitty said, She's dreadful good, but I'm glad she's gone. Ain't you? No. Had you rather have her here than me? Yes. Then why don't you ask her to come back? I would, if I could. I never did see anything like it. Everyone is so queer and cross today. I get snubbed all round. If folks ain't good to me, I'll go and marry Miles. I declare I will. You'd better. And with that, David left her frowning and pouting in the porch and went to shoveling snow with unusual vigor. End of chapter 13